involves an experiment in artificial intelligence. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 251 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are uh, extremely pleased to be joined by the managing director of the AI Now Institute, and a former senior advisor on AI to the Federal Trade Commission, Sarah Myers-West. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on, and we're very excited to talk about the new report that you and Amba Koch uh, co-authored together on the, the 2023 landscape report from AI Now, Confronting Tech Power. It's such a good piece of work. Thank you so much, and thanks for thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat it over with you guys. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really vital. Um, I always appreciate AI now AI now's uh, reports on the kind of you know the landscape of the AI industry, big issues kind of arising, big issues that need to be confronted. And I mean it's like it's absolutely something that it's a beat. You all have been on uh, way earlier than a lot of people, kind of really foreseeing where we're at now in terms of this this new this new moment, this new obsession, uh, the new cycle of hype and investment around AI. Um, you all kind of really laid out that this is exactly what things were going to be looking like if we didn't, you know, confront the kind of power that tech has over the over this technology, over these systems, you know. I know, you know, back in like the 2019 AI Now annual report, it it you know, it portends exactly where we're at now. Um and and you know, of course nobody nobody listened. <laughs> Yeah, but I think I mean what's what's important is one we have like you know to to meet this moment we have a really solid foundation of evidence in place now to sort of take action on like we I think we have a, a clear um, picture of what we're facing and why we are where we are today um, and I think we have a few more like resources and tools in our toolkit to to be able to meet the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the attention of a lot of people who are no, now finally realizing in various ways that this is, this is serious and it requires a serious response to it. You know, and of course, I think that, um, the, the seriousness of some of these people is in question in terms of the responses that they are raising. But, um, I, I do, uh, I am at least heartened and, you know, we on TMK are always and have long been fans of, of Lena Khan and the, um, kind of work that she does and the approach she takes to these questions. And, and I know you worked with her at the FTC, um, advising on AI. And, and I, 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 I think it's really um, heartening, at least, that in the in the um, comments I've seen uh, Lena Khan talk about with AI and stuff like she ha- like there's at least a part of the the U.S. policy and regulatory um, kind of uh, agencies that have a really clear eyed view of what this is in like a really political economic way, right? Like not, not kind of, um, uh, taken in by the hype or taken in by, uh, you know, whether it's the, 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 the existential risk that other, that some people in the New York times op-eds talk about, or it's the, Hey, there's nothing to worry about here. This is all great. Um, but really a kind of clear eyed foundational view. And, and I, I think that really comes through in the, the 2023 landscape report that like, at the base of this is a real understanding of the actual like political economic foundations of the industry. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, you know, 
definitely something to have like a blog post come out of the FTC this February that, you know, explicitly said AI is a marketing term and we need to proceed from there. Um, so I think, you know, people are definitely standing up and, and noticing and, and, you know, hopefully what we then see is not just sort of all of the right noises, but, you know, actually meaningful action. Um, We've seen some steps in that direction, but I think there's a long way to go on that front. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess let's let's get into the report because you know AI is much to my chagrin not a new topic for TMK. I feel like we've been doing nothing but talking about AI um, this whole year. Yeah. Uh, we same. <laughs> Remember when at the beginning of the year we said that we would? I think we said we'd only do like dispatches on it every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and then dispatches have turned into. Ed, I'm stuck in the quicksand of AI and I can't get out. And the more I struggle, the deeper it pulls me in. <laughs> when I left the FTC, I thought it was going to be quiet and I wouldn't know like what to do with myself. And then day one, I got a call to do like a press interview about ChatGPT because it had just come out and they were like, do you oh, think no. this is going to be a thing? <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, I think it probably will be. Um, and then like, like, forget about it. That's, that's like become the meme of like many moments since. It makes me yearn for the halcyon days of Web3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the very least, they couldn't really build anything useful with it or even like deceptively useful, you know, like Web3 applications. There was no attempt to fool you into thinking this was a human thing. It was just like, look at this like new cool way I made for us to make money. For five minutes. Basically, yeah. <laughs> no no one ever thought the blockchain was alive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> well, Don't hold your breath on that. So despite the fact that we have... Yeah, I know. Uh, despite the fact that we have talked a lot about uh, AI and generative AI and chat GPT and all of that, um, while reading through the report that you and Amba have, have very aptly uh, put together, and, and, and really, I think... Um, drew some great kind of circles around some, a topic that could be unwieldy and, and really huge and large and spin off in so many different directions that I, I think uh, anybody just kind of wading into it without either a solid understanding or a solid kind of framework or basis for how to theorize and analyze the the, the industry would get really lost um, and not know where to begin. But um D despite the fact that we've been talking a ton about AI and kind of developing this, you know, our, our, our own political economic analysis of it, I found the report so helpful um, in large part because I, I, I think a lot of the basis is um, built on laying out this uh, kind of triforce of advantages uh, that really... Um, are at the foundation of big tech's dominance in the AI industry. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about big tech and, and you, um, in the report very helpfully, 
um, provide a, a little bit of a, a box on why big tech. And, you know, I don't think we need to justify it as much, but just as a kind of broader, like, you know, this is a, it, it's a good shorthand to talk about um, the, the kind of very large corporations uh, in the tech sector, uh, you know, the, the Googles, Apples, Facebooks, Amazons, Microsofts, and so on, but like, you know, including other companies, but really it is about, and I think this is it's 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 actually crucial for understanding these advantages that we'll get to. Is that this is about understanding that this is an industry that is um, consolidating and concentrating in really major ways. Um, and and big tech is no longer just a kind of offhand way of referring to it, but it is really a way of saying that like there are a handful of really big technology companies that are kind of creating these choke points um, and. and and, and consolidating power, and it's really based on these three key dimensions that uh, that you lay out in the report around the data advantage, the computing power advantage, and the geopolitical advantage. And these are all um, kind of working together in in a very in, very synergistic ways. They're not discrete advantages; they're kind of mutually reinforcing. So maybe. I want to get into what each of these three look like, but also maybe step back a little bit and what is it about um, uh, analyzing the AI industry through these advantages? That what, what does that kind of tell us about the the contours of the industry itself? Mm, good question. I mean, so like fundamentally, AI in the current sort of like flavor of the moment, it's not, you know, the only version of AI. And I, I want to make sure that we like kind of hold that in our minds that like the things do not have to be as they currently are. But like certainly there's a lot of like power and resources and a momentum um, that have built around structuring AI at a scale that, you know, is very reliant on these three forms of advantage. And that can, that necessarily means that AI cannot exist without big tech companies. And big tech means, you know, the, like the, the firms that you just outlined, but it also means like the, you know, the ecosystem that's kind of caught up in this net of reliance on the structural dominance of a, of a few firms. Um, so I think that that's, that's what, you know, pulling out these three, you know, facets of advantage kind of points to that, you know, there's a, there's a resource dependency and there's also structures of power that reinforce, um, the, the dominance, um, as you say, in, in really interlinking ways. Let's, I guess let's get into the three advantages then. And it really is that like, um, framing them as advantages is really key because I think it really does show that there's, that this is a, a, that this is about competition and, and particularly it's about the elimination of competition in various ways or the control of your competition, um, through, uh, choke points that prevent other companies from having access to the key resources or power or, or, um, capability abilities needed to even gain structural power um, through um, you know, using these to your advantage to kind of continue to consolidate your power. And, you know, I, I think to listeners, like each of these three won't necessarily be, uh, you know, kind of foreign concepts, 
But what I really love about the report is that it brings all three together. Um, that like, you know, it's, it's not enough to have one of these advantages, the data advantage, for example, that's meaningless if you don't have a computing power advantage, um, or if you don't have a geopolitical advantage. And you can kind of do that with any of them, right? Like one is not sufficient, um, to kind of gain the kind of the form of structural dominance that we're seeing. Like these companies are really, um, relying on uh, all three advantages as the the kind of foundation of this structural dominance that we're seeing. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the the frame of competition or antitrust law can sometimes, because of these, like, you know, historically, the approach to competition over the last, like, few decades has so focused on, you know, encouraging innovation. It's been very price centric, you know, a particular lens on competition, the, the lens that I'm bringing to competition here and that we bring to, um, looking at these kinds of questions in the report is really about economic power. Um, and what happens when you are able to like consolidate massive amounts of economic power, how are you able to tilt the playing field to your advantage? And it plays, it plays out across, um, each of these fronts. Yeah, the, the, the three are, you know, one, you essentially like AI exists um, in many ways as a way of rationalizing and eking out more profit from consumer surveillance. So that's where the data advantage plays in. You know, it, it there, it's not for nothing that we see this like boom in AI at scale at a moment when um, these internet companies started to amass huge amounts of data that they were able to then start mining and processing and finding patterns um, in and, and then commercialize. Um, so the data advantages is one key facet and you can you know break down all of their corporate activity, the heavy focus on mergers and acquisitions, like all of the moves that they make to try to con- continue to build out that data advantage. Um, Computing power advantage, you know, the, the AI doesn't doesn't at scale doesn't work unless you have the computational power to be able to process it. I think that's actually where um, what we're seeing in generative AI is really finally making these companies feel what it looks like to be resource strained. Um, like you know, Microsoft is is starting to siphon off access to certain parts of AI hardware. You know, Sam Altman's making public comments about, oh, actually, maybe we need to start optimizing not for just massive um, computational processing, but figure out how to make these systems more efficient. Like people are really starting to feel the pinch um, associated with with computing power, but it has all of these other downstream effects, like on the environment on local communities, like a lot of the data centers are drawing on groundwater resources in resource strange, um, like in resource strained communities. So like lots to kind of unpack there. Um, and then the geopolitical advantage, you know, I think part of why these companies have been able to amass such power is because, um, you know, of industrial policies that have associated the success of large tech firms with the success of the nation, um, that, you know, this is what innovation looks like. Um, and I think what we've seen uh, as a really notable shift um, from the White House um, and from other national leaders 
is a change in tone towards this that, you know, maybe we actually don't want national monopolies as our national champions. And and maybe, you know, things could look a little bit different. Um, But certainly there's still a huge amount of resource that's coming from these companies to try and tilt the playing field in their favor. Um, In digital trade, for example, um, big tech firms are lobbying the hell out of the um, the IPEF framework, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, to basically get ahead of any effort to regulate them within any of the signatory nations, basically. It sort of renders all of that invalid. So there's, there's all of these fronts where um, companies are trying to um, ensure that, you know, even if regulators are starting to want to do something, they won't be able to. You know, with all of the advantages, but especially with the last one, right, um, you know, I was I was thinking about how in the aftermath of SVB, there was a chorus and a strain of commentary that said, "Look, venture capital is obviously you know adding some sort of noxious element to the way that we do tech financing and development, and it's also so risk so so risky that it collapsed the main beating heart of their financial ecosystem." Um, but you know, if we don't do this, then we're not. If we don't support venture capital the way that we do, if we don't organize our policies around it, if we don't preference uh, give them preferential treatment with regards to investing and getting public subsidies from pensions, that we are going to risk losing global technological supremacy. But you know, I, I, I think that as you as you point out here, and as needs to be teased out, also when people talk about it, it's like usually when people are saying global technological supremacy, they're like talking about a very specific geopolitical arrangement where it's like the United States in one way or another is supposed to have control or access to control of key parts of global supply chains, whether it's for semiconductors or whether it's technical research and intellectual property behind artificial intelligence or the development of, you know, systems or uh, algorithms that might purport to be artificial intelligence and you know i think i'd be curious you know in the in the research that you've done on the advantages you know what what are some of the things that i guess limit people from thinking about this advantage as something to focus on and instead saying well like we can't lose to china we can't lose to um, you know some other you can't lose the european union or we have to pursue an industrial policy that gives us unilateral control over um, this this or that key lever of technology. I mean, that's been the the predominant approach for a while now, right? Like it's it's um, that we we need to support American corporate led innovation. Like you, you can trace that at least back to like the Clinton era policy around telecommunications. So that's that's been the the dominant current. I think what's what's changed somewhat is you know the note like it's the, the headlines that we've been seeing over the past five years where we've had a series of crises that have called into question whether these firms are really acting in anybody's best interest, including the the nations. Now that said, there's still a significant amount of resourcing of you know narratives around there being a U.S.-China AI arms race. In one section of the report, we, we do a timeline where we kind of break down where that's coming from and some of the actors that are involved in, in pushing um, these narratives. And it's very much, 
you know, it feels very clear that what that rhetoric is, is intended to do is to say, you know, you can't have any kind of real and meaningful regulation. A lot of it's targeted toward antitrust, but to other kinds of accountability regulations as well. And like, if you want to be competitive, you just can't have any kinds of curbs on corporate power. Um, and we really have to break down and, and resist that, that notion. Yeah, it's it's been really wild to see. And we've talked about this a little bit, especially when we're, you know, talking about like the, you know, essays and books by Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt and Daniel Huttenlocker, right? But it's it's been really wild to see how Eric Schmidt in particular has has become this like massive power player and power broker um in the kind of the 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 military industrial complex as it exists now um and and the way that he's been really adept of not only uh securing a lot of funding and support and positions of influence um for his, you know for his companies or for silicon valley and the tech sec big tech and you know more specifically or more generally but also has really um uh you know, helped prod this uh, kind of competition or um, con- confrontation, rather, between different parts of the government, right? And so you've got the military saying, you know, doing the saber rattling and saying, if if we. Uh, Reign in the power of the American advantage, which means reigning, you know, by reigning in the power of big tech's corporate power, you know, uh, consolidation and all that. If we were to do things like antitrust regulation of the AI industry, well, that would put America at existential risk to losing the arms race to China. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the the Pentagon will have no choice but to uh, send a targeted strike directly to the FTC. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like, like, it's really, really wild to see um, different segments of the government kind of indirect competition with each other over whose idea of the way in which the AI industry and big tech more generally, whose idea of how this should be supported or regulated will win. Um, and I mean, it's like, it's a really, uh, it's a real David versus Goliath situation there too, right? Because I mean, we, the, the U.S. is a military state and, and really whatever the military decides is largely the direction that we go. And I think Eric Schmidt, um, you know, he, he, he's not the cause of this, but he is certainly, I think, uh, in a very um, cold-blooded way, uh, been uh, at the at the front of kind of leading this, and we've also talked about other um, similar kind of these these uh, these co- these psycho operatives uh, in in DC, like um, Jacob Helberg and others, who are kind of at the forefront as well around like the you know banning TikTok, right? Like it's this multi kind of fronted war, which is all ultimately about the same thing, which is uh, kind of stoking this you know uh red scare stoking a uh, anti-china um, rhetoric and using technology and industrial policy as kind of the one of the first and major um battlegrounds for for this this new new war against china yeah it's a it's a really like a, a really stark moment where you see those divides uh, taking place and the, the way that there is just like 
significant resourcing coming from Schmidt across many different fronts, right? Like he's, he's staffing up the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, staffing up, like I was attempting to staff up OSTP, um, you know, gets former national security leaders to write letters, um, you know, pointing to this, you know, being a, an issue. Um, and then on the other side, you have like the White House saying, and like, I'm going to just like read out the quote, because it's a really like stark quote to hear from the White House that, you know, in the, in the executive order on competition, they say this order reasserts as U.S. policy that the answer to the rising power of foreign monopolies and cartels is not the tolerance of domestic monopolization, but the promotion of competition and innovation by firms, small and large at home and worldwide. Like that's the White House saying that like, no, we do not need like, you know, big tech to, you know, be at the forefront of, of American interests that actually works at cross purposes to, you know, the, the kind of competition that we want to see. Now that's, you know, again, like the, the right noises, it's not necessarily like that we can't take that as like meaningful enforcement or, or regulation, but it is, it is a stark change in, in tone. Yeah, and and you also point out in the report that really uh, the the whole rhetoric around the arms race, which you know is absolutely something that is glommed onto by all sides of uh, the kind of reactions to AI. You know, you've got Yuval Noah Harari and Tristan Harris and that crew using this same exact rhetoric to be like, you know, this is an existential risk, uh, and and you know we need we need to make sure that we're the safeguards, the, the stewards of, of it. Um, and then you've got on the other side, you know, the Sam Altman's and Mark Zuckerberg's and Eric Schmidt's saying, you know, well, we're going to fall behind. If we don't do it, then you're letting China do it. Right. Um, and, and, it, it, but, but as you point out in the report, all of this sits extremely awkwardly uh, in the reality of the situation that China is uh, really cracking down on their own uh, tech sector and actually reining in and breaking up um, and enforcing really heavy um, competition rules and antitrust and uh, all. You know, they're they're doing all of the stuff that we're also saying. Hey, America needs to do this too, and America's like, well, no, we can't because China's not, I mean, uh, well, you know, don't look over there actually. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I think that is also interesting because, um, you know, there there are different, there are reasons why, like, you know, United States, or I guess maybe some of the commentaries, like, well, of course, China and European Union can pursue antitrust ambitions that the United States can't. We need to have these national champions. We need to have these uh, protectors of the national security, like you're talking about, um, who, who, are, who have the geopolitical advantages to, to, to protect the interests and then the, the, the computing and the data advantages to be able to preserve their position. But I, but it is also really instructive, or I think one thing is instructive, you know, where like as many flaws as there are with like how China does manage, um, it's so an economy that you know the uh, like for example the Alibaba uh, breakup was a, you know an interesting one uh, where they decided that they were going to break up the e-commerce giant into six units you know which of course would then lead you know would be more likely to allow an IPO of any of those individual six units mm-hmm. so it's still not like quite a sort of like uh we're going to you know we're protecting public markets but it's still uh, I think a, a, a different move than what it had looked like just like three years ago when before Jack Ma spoke up 
and, and, and criticize the, the the party uh for not letting a private capital flow in right so i'm, I'm curious also what mm-hmm. you think about like you know here at home you know there are a lot of these antitrust tools and um, outcomes that we recognize need to happen and there are also debates and questions that need to be had about whether or not competition is the end-all be-all. Maybe there are just some instances where we don't let something on the marketplace or we don't let a market exist. You know, How do we bridge the gap between where we are right now and getting to those, you know, uh, getting to those points in the conversation or to those outcomes? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the premise is a key one, that competition is one leverage point it's useful if like your your end goal is you know for for whatever motivations you're coming from the if the concern is the amassing of economic power by an entity um then you know the structural separations that are facilitated through competition law um can be an effective tool um you know if you're if you're concerned about the the way that um a particular player has amassed sufficient resources and is, is wielding them in, in ways that are harmful to the, the public interest, then that's, that's a good place for competition law. That does not, you know, come in front of the, the fact that there are many, uh, you know, types of technology or uses to which certain technologies can be put that should not be allowed in the first place. Um, and, and so having a, a multifaceted approach that includes, you know, strict bans, um, that includes, you know, data minimization, you know, kind of curbing the ability of firms to amass um, data on indiv- individuals and all of the privacy harms that are associated with that, um, you know, bringing a more, a more mass, multifaceted um, approach is, I think, going to be really key. And, and one of the things that we are advocating for in the report is trying to break down some of the policy silos across those areas so that, you know, you can be more deliberate about how, um, how these tools work together and also how companies are trying to play the tensions between these areas to their own advantage that are trying, how they're trying to sort of use, um, you know, moves that are ostensibly made in the name of privacy um, to, you know, further assert themselves and consolidate their their position in the market by getting rid of all of the like small data broker um, companies that are um, competing with them. For example, how do we get there? I mean, that's that's the like really really hard part. I think you know, one like is is just getting stronger regulatory attention. I mean, these these tools also work on different timescales, right? Like co- bringing a competition enforcement case takes a really long time. Um, and there's also a lot of precedent to work against that's, you know, not, not sort of tilted in the favor of taking these kinds of stronger structural remedies. So that's going to be a necessarily a slower front. Um, but, you know, in you know passing new regulations, trying to move things upstream so you can act earlier, not wait until harms have happened. Um, trying to move things you know out of the hands of the broader public or regulators to you know figure out all of the the ways that things are going awry and put it back on the companies to be like, yeah, we're pretty sure that we're not violating the law. Um, you know, I th- I think companies have very savvily started to adopt an approach that's like more welcoming of regulation with the, you know, caveat that like that comes down the stream. Um, but when you get into the details of like, oh, well, what do you think that should look like? 
are you sure that you're not breaking the law today? I don't think that they would be able to answer that question. Um, and so really focusing there. I think that's a, uh, a really interesting point there too, is that like, you know, and, and there's been, um, reports coming out around like the, the data set that open AI used to chain, uh, to train GPT four, um, to chain, to train, you know, GPT 3.5, which, you know, powers chat GPT or did, uh, you know, until very recently. And, you know, there's been a lot of reports coming out about, you know, that like the, uh, I think the Washington Post has something um, that just came out around how uh, the the copyright sig- uh, symbol um, appears like 200 million times on in the data sets that uh, 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 OpenAI used, right? And so, like you know, it's just wildly breaking um, your laws that would otherwise have and have otherwise been used as really a sharp end of of the stick for capital. You know, we've we've talked to Corey Doctorow and Rebecca. About this, and uh, on their point, uh, on their book, uh, choke point capitalism, about how all of these kind of things around, you know, copyright is an extremely uh, powerful tool of enforcement that capital uses all the time to protect their interest, and so it's really interesting to see like when these things suddenly don't uh, get uh, applied or when discretionary power goes the other way um, in enforcement. Um, and, and the yeah, this idea that like, you know, I think it was uh, in an interview with, um, it was either you or Amba, I cannot remember, um, but you were asked, uh, you know, if you could have Sam Altman in like a congressional in- uh, hearing and you got to ask him one question, what would it be? And I think it was something like, how many times have has OpenAI broken the law? Do you know exactly how many times you've broken the law or are you following every applicable law? And I, I think the, the speculative response would, would have to truthfully be something like we don't know, right? And and I think that's that's uh, that's extremely telling here as well in terms of um, what structural dominance looks like and and how OpenAI as a you know it's not a new firm but it was certainly a unknown firm by to anybody except for people like us who watched the industry um, up until like six months ago. Um, but it really does. But I think it's in large part through um, the major. Uh, investment by Microsoft that they've kind of been able to become this structurally dominant um, firm where suddenly different laws apply to them in different ways. Yeah, I have to give Amba credit for that one because that that was her um, her quote. But I think it's it's totally true. Like it says, it definitely says something about you know the position that these firms have in the industry that they're pushing out product like crazy um, without, um, you know, one, knowing that it even does what it's supposed to in the first place. But then two, you know, with with relative impunity to the, you know, possibility that um, they could be in, in violation of the law. Um, so I, honestly, I think some of these firms, like they couldn't even tell us necessarily like where all of their data is. Like that's actually a really gnarly problem for, for companies to to solve. So, you know, with, it's clear that they don't have, they don't feel like there's sufficient friction on the outside, um, to, you know, justify cleaning up their own houses. Um, so I think that's, it's a, it's a place that we certainly need to start. 
And it speaks to the kind of structural aspects of this as well. I mean, you know, we were just talking about some of the really common, like the, the common toolkit here um, for forever has been these things around like, oh, well, we need to do like um, algorithmic audits, right? Or we need to have like privacy sandboxes or we need to, you know, oh, it, you know what we need is like, you know, just better accounting of the data um, or, you know, just it, it's, it's all of these little things um, that have all have been the kind of like the 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 only tools in the toolkit, uh, and I, I think as well like you the in the report you both make a really strong and compelling case um, that not only are these things ineffective, they have largely been co-opted and captured by um, the industries, which is which speaks to one reason why these kinds of things are the only tools that seem to be available is because that's exactly what the companies want uh, is that yeah I know all we need is uh, privacy sandboxes and algorithmic audits uh, and all of these little things you know in other words nothing nothing structural yeah I mean I think if, if there's one thing that we should be doing um in this space like in trying to figure out where we need to go it's certainly like looking at what are the proposals that the industry players are advocating for the most. And they love, you know, sort of risk management approaches that rely on law that are essentially produce like voluntary, you know, mechanisms for, for them to um, take on. They love auditing approaches, you know, anything that sort of one doesn't require a whole lot of resources on their part. Um, and then two allows them to direct um, where the attention goes and where it does not. And, and I think that there are a lot of proposals on the table that really offer a tremendous amount of leeway to industry players to gatekeep um, around, you know, scrutiny of, of, you know, their own entities. And, and I don't see, you know, other places where we approach regulation in that way, particularly when there's, you know, such systemic impacts of, of what these technologies do. I'd be curious, you know, if if we were to pursue an uh, an agenda where we we sufficiently get to either break up or f like you know put bright lines preventing operation uh, for a lot of these big tech companies and and artificial intelligence or in the business to business or weapon systems that they call AI, you know, what do you have a sense of what would emerge or is or or do you have a sense that we aren't even able to do that because most of what we imagine is just like subordinated by this thing by 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 big tech's vision? I mean, a couple thoughts. One is a lot of these problems that we're pointing out actually are they're being mediated by technology but there's there's a whole separate other layer of like austerity of militarization that's really like driving the heart of it so one maybe if we were able to get the bans in place then we'd be able to get to the underlying problem of you know devaluation of labor of um you know really, you know, the upswell and austerity, the rise of like far right politics, all of these things that are going on under the surface that are sort of being um, intermediated by AI and certainly exacerbated by AI, but aren't fundamentally about AI. So one is like clarity, maybe, um, and the ability to move forward on the, on the underlying problems. Two is maybe it is possible to see other types of AI start to come to fruition. I mean, I think, one thing that's been 
on my mind lately is the the product of this, you know, frenzy around generative AI, but also the industry capture of the academic field of AI over the last decade is that we're only seeing certain types of AI being built. Um, and they're, they're all the kind like AI at scale, those, those kinds of models. So, you know, we, I think Karen Howe made the observation about, you know, there being really an AI monoculture that's, that's emerged. And I think that that's, that rings very true. And, and I wonder if maybe, you know, other visions, uh, like if, if AI is not, uh, not a, a fixed term, it's, if it's a floating signifier, then maybe it can signify something different um, once we start to break down um, this like structural dependency on, on the big tech flavor of artificial intelligence. And maybe, maybe that can also encompass different um, structures of power. Yeah, no, I, think I don't that's know. A, no, that's a really good point because you know I, I feel like you know even if we think about for example like where I feel like when I talk to people their immediate thought is like oh well like maybe you could just have like some innocent sort of agent or system in your home but then like when you just talk through with people about like what they're talking about and having some sort of automated functioning of the home it still is really just like a more germane or humane version of like a product that is only there because big tech companies need are trying to you know create platforms to extract all this information out of you in the first place right and so it's like even in even in that situation where some you know i feel like we're even something as simple as like our own homes it's hard to even imagine an alternative where you might benefit from some sort of artificial system because the 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 whole model and the pipeline is like you generate you you have some need. You generate data in, in you know in exchange for getting it somehow met. You you maybe you take place in another transaction. Are convinced to be a part of this platform, which will pull you in even deeper in most instances, right? Instead of like anything that might be outside of the market. I think. Yeah, I mean, if you look back in like the '80s and even into the '90s, like there there were a bunch of people writing that about like you know, feminist AI or AI from below and like these, these other visions for AI and like, it never gets kind of past that theorization. And I think it's because of the market imperative. Like that's, that's always, always come to play in a way that ultimately is stifling for, for any other, other visions. Um, and so I'm, you know, it's, it's really, I I've never been able to get beyond the thought exercise here because and, and like the I get so frustrated with the the um, discourses around like democratizing AI because often the diagnosis is so sharp and spot on but the product of like how do you democratize AI almost always leads you right back to something that ends up reinforcing big tech dominance that was certainly like the critique that we made of the national AI research resource which like in the first proposal would have been a licensing re- regime that probably would have contracted with AWS or, or with Google um, so even though the the analysis was like yes this is exactly right these are the problems um, the proposed solutions never seem to quite get there yeah I mean it's it's so hard and you know now uh, AWS has announced their bedrock system as well which is a bunch of you know now AWS has all, a bunch of generative AI systems uh, plugged into it you know, this is all AWS is such a massive uh, and influential software toolkit 
um, for developers. And, you know, it's, it's always been the side of controversies, you know, like we, you know, in the report, you talk about the kind of like bright line rules around biometrics. And of course, AWS, you know, had recognition, um, which, you know, gained a lot of attention back, you know, way back when during the, uh, the Black Lives Matter, um, protest, uh, and, and, you know, when these policing technologies were getting attention and AWS says, oh, well, we're going to do a moratorium on this. You know, we're going to, we're going to stop for a year supplying this to the cops. Uh, and, and, you know, what that means is we're going to let everyone cool off. Um, uh, so they stopped paying attention to us and then we're going to go back and do it again. Right. And it, it is, one of the things that really comes out in the report, and I think one reason why it is so difficult, and I do want to push and talk a little bit more about this, like what would an alternative really look like? Um, and the way in which, you know, I, uh, one, one, I think one reason why it's so difficult to actually think about that in a, in a serious way, um, is because uh, the the politics of refusal is essentially like non-existent here, right? Um, and I think that comes through in the report, like the ability to say no uh, is is never on the table. Um, and you know, I, I I've talked about this on the show before as um, a form of innovation realism, um, which we've talked about in like kind of you know building off of Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism, um, but that you know innovation can only happen through venture capital right like this is a this is very much rhetoric you hear constantly and i think there's a corresponding ai realism um that that is uh, very much taking hold right now and i've heard this a lot you know i'm in a faculty of information technology there's a a whole department of ai and data science which i'm not part of but there is a department in my faculty um and they and i remember just seeing like you know, they're having, you know, these renowned um, professors of AI coming and giving talks, you know, explaining what's chat GPT and stuff. And like in the abstracts of these talks, they explicitly say, well, we can't resist or avoid AI. Like, you know, they just assert it as a, uh, as just a, a, a statement that, you know, no, it requires no more explanation or thought other than the mere assertion that this cannot be a resisted or avoided. Um, and that's really kind of taken as true, I think, uh, by, uh, yeah, and our only politics of refusal, rather, the only one that gets any attention, um, are the, the fucking dumbass politics of refusal around like these moratoriums put out by the, the Future of Life Institute and stuff, right? Like just the, the complete, um, opposite of what we actually mean. It's not serious whatsoever. They are completely non-serious uh, about all of this. And so I, I, I don't know, like, can you talk a little bit about this politics of refusal? And also, I think it feeds into um, one reason why it's so hard to think about alternatives is because there does seem to be something structural at a technological level um, with AI that that does uh, push it towards these consolidations of power. And it gets to the kind of these advantages, especially the technical ones around the data advantage and the computing power advantage. These are 
AI systems are extremely data and compute intensive, um, which means they're very uh, capital intensive, uh, which means that like, you know, democratization doesn't make any sense. You can't have, uh, you know, your own uh, data server un under your bed um, running your bespoke AI, right? Like you can't do that. Uh, and so it does require um, democratization uh, of, a, of the system, you know, thinking about it in like very Langdon Winner-esque kind of terms of like, there's a politics of the system which um, has baked into it a centralization of the system, much as, you know, Langdon Winner argues that you can't have your own nuclear reactor um, in your backyard. There's a politics of centralization and scale to nuclear power. Sa the same goes with AI, and it, it is a technology that pushes towards the kind of structure, um, structural consolidation that we see, and also pushes against a politics of refusal. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of that thoughts there. I mean, I think I'm I'm glad that you brought in Winner because I think that one of the the threads that we have been thinking a lot is is you know very much like sort of the STS construct of like where are the moments when things could be otherwise. Like how how do we create some space for not necessarily putting the onus on us to like solutionize um, here because that's sort of like a false. Um, a false response, but instead to, you know, think, you know, really proactively about like, how did, how exactly is it that we got to this place where refusal is so seemingly impossible? And it's not lost on me that all of the examples that you gave of those moratoria were initiated by companies. So it's not like a meaningful refusal if it's coming from the actors that are also perpetuating the harm. Um, but we did spend a lot of time talking with, um, who's with Justice Speaks about, you know, like, what are, where are the wins? Where are the, the places that we can point to either, like, you know, ways that this has been done successfully, maybe on a smaller scale, or other domains where, like, we've seen successes that, like, it, it create that space for the, the possibility of imagining things being different. Um, a case in point are the, you know, local city bans on facial recognition, which we've seen in, in a number of different municipalities. Now that's, that's limited to government use. There's, you know, they've, they've stayed at the municipality level. They haven't gone, um, they haven't gone beyond that, but it's something It's sort of, it's a signal that it is, it is possible. Um, you know, the, the Netherlands in response to local organizing around the harmful impacts of data center construction on groundwater pollution, the Netherlands put a moratorium on constructing new data centers for cloud providers. Um, like there is space for things, um, to be imagined differently. And so like we, we have to resist this notion that I think has, has really crested in the past few months that there is this like inevitability or this inertia to um, the development of, of AI. That's very much a, a rhetoric that is beneficial primarily to, I guess, to two categories of people. One is the industry. Um, and then two is sort of like the fear mongers that are also sort of profiting off of, off of the industry. Industry, industry.
you mentioned before that like a risk-based approach or a risk management framework for how to regulate or rein in or develop these uh, technologies is is faulty and it, it is a uh, it, it is it's a failed approach in many different ways if we actually want to have radical and meaningful change um, but so could you then talk about like on one hand like you know because the the like the 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 moratorium or the letter for pausing or any of the 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 kind of fears around AI that get the most uh press with Elon Musk or Yuval Noah Harari or uh even people like Gary Marcus right like I I think that like it is all ultimately based in risk right quite explicitly either existential risk um or a more like mundane kind of like McKinsey uh type of uh, of risk analysis and and risk management. Um, so could you talk more about why a risk-based approach is uh, a failure um, uh, and what, what a, like an, uh, an alternative kind of framework or, or basis for a different approach would be? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the risk framework has very much, you know, gains momentum. It is being institutionalized in the EU AI Act. That is a NIST, uh, a risk framework. Um, NIST has a risk management framework. I think, um, you know, if you take a step back, like that framing of risk points to you know, the, the key motivation behind addressing artificial intelligence being like the, um, sort of reduction of anxiety, um, rather than the addressing of an actual real material underlying harm risk points to harms that could occur in the future, as opposed to harms that are being enacted today. Um, it's a framing that sort of serves certain kinds of interests and not others. And I think it's not lost um, or should not be lost that the kinds of harms that we're seeing um, unfold today sort of are, are the harms that are replicating historical patterns of inequality, the harms that are like way off in the future that are leading people to like, you know, talk about like terraforming Mars. Those are the harms that like, you know, much uh, people who are wealthy and in positions of power have the luxury of thinking about and investing like millions of dollars into. That's kind of like the the sort of theoretical um, background. The the you know more like brass tacks part of it is these risk frameworks. Like what they point to is you have to categorize a system according to different kinds of risks. That allows you know the the company. A lot of that happens at the behest of the company. It is on the company to um, mitigate risks, assuming that it can never fully address risks. Like it points to everything away. It points it points away from bans, structural curbs, and towards, this is going to be an ever-present source of anxiety in our society. All we have to do is like tamp it down a little bit at the, at the ends. One thing that I feel also, or that I'm uh, interested in is, you know, when we're also looking at, when we're looking at like the, you know, so, as you talked about some of the, some of these policy windows, right? Um, you know, sometimes I feel a concern that these tech companies and uh, and the few uh, the tech companies and the propaganda they put out, as long as like as well as the media that in various waves receding as they may be, um, repropagating that 
kind of inoculated, or I worry that it has inoculated a lot of people against reconsidering and being more critical of technology in certain ways, or it's like it has presented this idea of it aligns almost exactly with what Silicon Valley and what big tech companies want people to believe and, and off and pushing off and offering to them most control and domination over it. Um, you know, is, do you think that there are ways to combat this beyond or in addition to just like the standard work of doing like tech accountability and debates in public to try to move the needle or is this like a longer term issue that is going to be a harder thing to root out because I definitely do worry that like the way that we, not the way that we're talking about it right now, but the way that, you know, most, or maybe a little bit because as we talked about, it's hard to imagine a non-market thing, but like the way in which a lot of the tech is imagined and talked about and debated and even futures are imagined is still like on their terms because we're trying to get rid of the bastards, you know, (laughs) we're trying to get, we're trying to fight against what they're doing. So I'd be curious what your thoughts were on that. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways we're at a really different moment right now than we were a few months ago. Um, I was talking with, um, I was talking with Meredith Whitaker, who's like the co-founder of AI now. She's now the the president of Signal. Um, and she made an observation that really stuck with me, which is, you know, a lot of our experiences with AI over the past several years have, have predominantly been invisible. It's been AI that's used on us at a remove to make sensitive decisions that impact our resources or impact our life chances, but we're not directly engaging with it. And, you know, in a lot of ways, ChatGPT is functionally not that different from other types of AI, but it gives an interface where people are directly interacting with AI in ways that like, you know, on one front, like people got really like wowed by it. They're like, Oh, that this is, this is, you know, remarkable. Then I think a lot of people started to feel like, Oh, this is kind of like playing with like smarter child on AIM. Like it's kind of janky. Like people are kind of going through a whole evolution of like direct interfaces with artificial intelligence. And I think like, you know, there's been a big wave of hype, big wave of excitement, anxiety that has very much been in the, um, in the language of the dominant firms, like in the language of the market, I think that as that sort of starts to calm down, my optimistic hope is that there's a, a point at which that direct interface with with artificial intelligence gives people a touch point for you know building a wider front for you know when you want to organize around like an ADS system or like, you know, the productivity monitoring software or your employer is making you download on your um, computer. Like there's a shorthand for like the ways that it can be janky um, that can, can give people maybe a stronger base. That's the hope, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see um, how, how things unfold. And I, I, another thing that we've thought through a lot in connection to the report is like, why are we talking about AI? Um, you know, the focus right now on we need to build AI policy, I think kind of belies that a lot of things that we really need are like labor policy. Um, we need, you know, that there, there, there are things that like are very directly relevant to AI, but are in other fronts and sort of, you know, 
use AI as a, as an entry point to like get what, what you need, but like definitely don't limit yourself to, to AI data policy. I mean, the, the ban on, on chat GPT in Italy was through the GDPR. Um, the, you know, the ruling against Uber and Ola for using automated firing and personal, uh, personalized like wage setting that was through GDPR. Like these, these, um, other fronts can be, can be more effective maybe. That's how they almost got me to go to law school. They're like, hey, Ed, you know, I know you hate tech, but don't you really just hate how at the intersection of labor and antitrust law, there's this giant gaping pit <laughs> that a bunch of conglomerates keep throwing their money at to, to build their own little fiefs? There sure is. And yeah. I was like, yeah, you, you're right. I do hate that. <laughs> hey, they almost got you in the first half, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's you're exactly right, because this is a drum that we beat constantly on TMK that like at the end of the day, it's not, you know, what what um, what we have is not a like law lagging behind tech problem. We have a um, law not enforcing rules against tech problem. Right. Like we already have the policies on the books, the regulations, the agencies, um, the precedents, like everything is already there. And it goes back to what we were talking about with like, you know, if you could ask Sam Altman, how many, how many laws are you breaking? You know, I don't know. And that's because no one's enforcing. I mean, has no interest in knowing or no need to know. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, like, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's at uh, you know, University of Melbourne Law School, um, Jake Goldenfine, who, uh, and we were talking about this just yesterday that like there are huge debates in the 90s around like the existence of a thing called cyber law. Because um, there were a lot of lawyers being like, this is like, we don't need cyber law. We already have law that pertain, pertains to um, these issues that are coming up from like the, the World Wide Web, right? Like we have privacy laws, we have labor laws, we have antitrust laws, like, but there are huge debates. And in large part, this also goes back to um, things that like, you know, uh, you know, we've all written about Meredith has written about, you know, around like the, the, uh, who controls, um, the funding here, whose interests kind of have, um, influence over the, um, academic trends and, and, uh, and, and, and focuses of attention. Um, and like a big reason why cyber law became a thing and why the people arguing against the need for a separate uh, sector of, uh, of legal studies on cyber law, the, the reason why they lost that battle was in large part because, uh, there was a lot of hype and attention and excitement and money to be had by chasing after and be and presenting yourself as an expert in this new thing called cyber law um, and we see the exact same thing happening now with AI we saw the same stuff happening with platforms um, you know in the in the previous uh, cycles of Silicon Valley like it just it's it's this constant this constant need to be always looking forward um, and never looking at the present, let alone looking at the the past. Uh, and and if you're always looking forward, then you are just being controlled by um, the, the the forces the, of the forces that present themselves as the future, um, right? And so this is exactly how Silicon Valley has uh, positioned themselves and done so extremely aptly. And so if you're concerned about the about looking forward, then um, then they're the ones who are going to lead you there, and it, it really prevents us from 
thinking like have we're constantly reinventing the wheel um in terms of like what like what's ai what's what's data what's cyber right um and and always forgetting that the basis of all the basis of law is always precedence but we act as if there's no precedence we're all just figuring things out we're all just it's just vibes you know we're all just constructing the economy together <laughs> i am born anew every single day ed um i come out i come out of the womb each morning and I rub my eyes and I say, look at this brave new world. I need to figure out entirely new ways every day to understand it. It just so happens though that every single day the insight and the lesson that we gain is the one that worked out yesterday. That's just the coincidence, right? There's one more thing that, that I just remembered that came that came to my mind, and I think it's a really nice way to maybe bring to wrap this conversation up because I started the uh, the episode talking about how one reason why I thought the report was so very useful, despite the fact that so much is being written and talked and and said about AI right now, um, us included in that. But one reason why I thought it was so very useful is because it is uh, it prov- it both provides and applies. Um, uh, just a, a fantastically uh, materialist analysis of power um, in the within the tech sector, right? And really focusing on uh, these kind of specific mechanisms um, of uh, of power in the tech sector, namely the the advantages we've talked about, right? These kind of structure, political economic structures. Um, I love this. I, I I always love a good, clear materialist anal- uh, analysis of um, technological capitalism and technological power. Um, however, like <laughs> I. It, it is very interesting to me, and this says something as well to um, what made me think about this was when you mentioned you were talking to Meredith, you know, fr- friend of the show, um, about like how AI, the power and decisions of AI have largely been invisible um, in most people's lives until very recently. Um, and and that, that still persists, but it's being made visible in ways that are really like ricocheting between two ends of the spectrum of uh, like the the kind of hysteria, the hysterical reactions to it, um, or the uh, the the increasingly mundane normalization of it, right? And we see the exact we and never landing on the uh, the dialectic of of materialist analysis. Um, you know, weirdly, weirdly, never landing on that on that uh, side of things. But I, I just want. Uh, you know, we 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 dunk on it and complain about it, but um, the, it is interesting the ways in which like these two poles are also present in the same um, media pieces uh, or the same newspapers or the same days, right? Like we had the sixty minutes interview with Sundar Pakai, um, where the the uh, the journalist Scott Pelly, um, you know 
like was absolutely uh, shocked and up and 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 taken aback by the ability of uh, of Bard to like compose a uh, a humanistic story, like you know, just these like really hysterical reactions to like I have seen the face of God um, in a chat box. Um, while at the same time, like just a few days ago. The uh, New York Times upshot ran an article titled 35 Ways Real People Are Using AI Right Now. I was really interested. I was like, okay, I wonder what these 35 ways are. Um, Number one, people are using AI to, one, plan gardens. Two, plan workouts. Three, plan meals. Four, make gifts, right? Like, it's like the most insanely mundane. And so it seems like... Like we are simultaneously told at the same time, often by the same newspapers, that this thing is going to end human civilization as we know it. But also, it's a really nice way to plan a garden and plan your meals from a day, you know, on a day to day basis. Like, I, I mean, there's, I, I just wonder from your perspective, from your position, um, Sarah, like, on one hand, why? Why is this happening? Like, why are these the two responses to, like, why are people kind of ricocheting so wildly between, like, radically different ends of the uh, the spectrum to understanding AI? And, you know, like, I guess, like, in one part, like, why, where is this coming from? But then also, like, what is, like, what is the... The anecdote. What is it? To, what does it mean to actually do like a materialist analysis? To have like a really good understanding of of, of AI that doesn't um, fall victim to to these kind of two radical uh, ends of the spectrum. So why, honestly, I don't know if I can answer it any better than you are. You can, other than to say, you know, it certainly reminds me of previous periods in the history of technology. You know, I'm reminded by you know the the advent of personal computers and, you know, you have the like space wars sort of vision of computing um, that, you know, you could by like hacking your computer, you can start a nuclear war just by playing like a game. Um, And then you have like, here, here are the like housewives that are building out their recipes on their kitchen computer. Like these sort of the same sort of poles um, across computing technology, I think you can trace that over over time. That that sort of dual tracking of high anxiety and also um, mundane integration into our lives. I think what's really different here, though, and like really important to like have in our minds, is that like I'm I'm really still not convinced that we are the end users for these products. Um, they like, they're so resource intensive. There is going to be such a push for profit that I frankly, like, I think that the, the pause letter, like industry players probably love that because they need six months to figure out how the hell are we going to make money off of these things with like, you know, the frenzy of people going on them. I don't think that they're ready for it. Um, so that push to profit, I think is, is being felt really strongly within these firms. They're trying to make sure that they have like some sort of first mover advantage to cement their positions, but, um, you know, they're, they're definitely strained. And so, um, you know, these kinds of moments are where we got commercial surveillance as the mode of profitability for the internet. Like the, the, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, uh, 
we should be skeptical of those two polls because I don't think that the end user of AI systems is the average person. I think it is going to be predominantly focused um, within like capitalist firms that are trying to, you know, figure out the best way to, you know, maximize um, their profit, maintain, you know, the, the ecosystems that they've already built um, and in a, in a moment when they're facing financial headwinds otherwise. Um, so I don't know if that answers any of what you, what you just asked me, but it's certainly been on my mind lately. No, I think that's, that, that's a fantastic uh, and very accurate, relevant and accurate point there. I mean, I think this is a good, a good takeaway here is that like you, you are not the user um, of, of these technologies. And, and that, that's, I think that means something much more significant now than when people would say that about like platforms, right? Well, like if you're not paying for it, then you're the product, right? Like, you know, that became kind of trite cliche, like, yes, it's true, but also it's a bit like there's something more interesting going on there. I think this idea, though, that you are not the user for these systems is something that we have to keep in mind. And that actually is really, really meaningful in terms of like what these systems are built to do, um, what they, how they exist in the world. And it also links up, like we have a lot of precedent to look at, like not that long ago either. I mean, this was ultimately um, the argument that I made uh, about smart cities, for example, the, in a previous era of my work that focused on smart cities that I would say, like, despite the fact that like, just as with AI, the consumer um, or the citizen is always kind of trotted out as like the uh, the justification for these systems, right? Like this is going to lead to like so much more convenience in your life. It's going to empower you in different ways. And, you know, uh, we as long as it's what's good for the consumer, what's good for the citizen is good for all of us, right? And, and it's uh, that, that, but just as it was with smart cities, the, the citizen or the, you know, was never the end user of any of these systems. It was always, uh, the police were always the end user of the systems. Um, city managers were always the end user of the systems. Um, it was never citizens, right? I think the say, I think you, you are, um, exactly right to like bring that out right now is that that's what's with AI is that like, you know, it's the reason why I think the ricocheting between hysterical reactions and the like mundane, hey, like this is, this is, there's nothing to worry about here. Like both of those are really kind of based on this idea that like, um, that, you know, it, that we're the users of the technology and either we're going to use it for good or we're going to use it for evil. Right. But like, uh, I think you're right, Sarah, that we, we are not the, we are not the users of these technologies. If anything, we are, we are the people they are going to be used on, uh, at, at the very, you know, at minimum. Um, and at most, I think like a lot of their uses will simply just bypass us. Right. Or they will, or they will exist in not an individualistic way where it's like, Oh, it's, it's using, it's being used on me in some targeted way, but more like it's being used on us in like a much more like aggregate collective uh, societal kind of way. (laughs) 
Well, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion, Sarah. So so good to to have you on the show at last. Um, really, really loved the 2023 landscape report confronting mm-hmm. tech power um, that you and Amba Koch put out um, at, you know, uh, with AI Now Institute or through AI Now Institute. Um, we'll, we'll, we will have a link to that uh, report in the episode description. Uh, everybody should absolutely go and read it. There's so much detail, so much research um, that is into that report that we didn't even touch on. Um, I, like, you know, just just a, a really, in addition to being a fantastic kind of analytical framework uh, uh, to critically understand this, um, the industry, there's also just a lot of fantastic, like empirical detail um, and description, kind of market analysis of, you know, we didn't even touch on, for example, the 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 abridged list of massive data mergers um, that you have in the report and discuss. And, you know, just these kinds of things that really give us exactly that, a landscape uh, understanding of the AI uh, industry. So, We'll, we'll have a link to that in the episode. Um, we'll have a link to your uh, Twitter account in the episode. Is there anything else you want to direct people's attention to? No, that's that's great. Thank you so much for, for having me. It was a great conversation. Um, and again, big fan of the show. Ah, thank you. Thanks well, for coming on. Uh, and everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, and so we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Later. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,